hppodcraft.com. It was Charging Buffalo who told Zamakona of the queer stone doorways, gates, or cave mouths at the bottom of some of those deep, steep wooded ravines which the party had noticed on the northward march. These openings, he said, were mostly concealed by shrubbery, and few had entered them for untold eons. Those who went to where they led never returned, or, in a few cases, returned mad or curiously maimed. But all this was legend, for nobody was known to have gone more than a limited distance inside any of them within the memory of the grandfathers of the oldest living men. He would not tell Big Chief Coronado what he knew, for Coronado would not listen to Indian talk anymore. Yes, he could show Zamakona the way if the white man would leave the party and accept his guidance. But he would not go inside the opening with the white man. It was bad in there. That was the opening of Chapter 3 of The Mound by Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop. The story we're continuing to cover here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer, and we are glad to be back. We are back, finally. Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, everyone. We, we had to take some time off because Chad had another unfortunate death in the family, and I got ill as well. Well, so you traveled home to the Quad Cities where we're from. I did. And then I had to go... Uh, around the same time you were already there so we we actually just missed we each other just missed each other we were in town together at the same time but chad had to go to a funeral that morning and i had to take off on a plane so we just which was a real bummer because i yeah. haven't seen you i mean we do this show every week but i haven't seen you in almost a year yeah so ships passing in the night but know. you know i gotta, <laughs> I gotta tell you this so my grandma passed away it's very sad she was born in 1917 i don't know why i was thinking about well that's the that's the first year we started with on this show with the tomb. Oh, I think, yeah, that's saying. right. Yeah. And actually, when we were talking about the tomb, when we were on that episode, I had mentioned that my uncle was the one who had first given me a Lovecraft book. He gave me a whole lot of books, but that was oh, right. my first exposure to oh, it. Oh, Charles Dexter Ward he gave you. That's right. And now, he's not a real technical guy. He does, I don't even think he owns a computer, so he's never had a chance to really listen to the show. So when I was back in town around October, I brought maybe like our first 20 episodes or so on CD. Right. And gave them to him. And I didn't know whether he'd listen to them or not. But I thought, you know, if you have time, check it out. This is this thing I'm doing. The day my grandmother died, my mother called me to let me know it had happened. And it, it had literally just happened. She passed away. And so my mother's talking to me and all these other folks are talking to her in the room because she's got things to deal with. And so she handed the phone over to her brother, my uncle. And uh, he picks up and he says, hey. And I, I'm like, oh, man, I, you know, I'm really sorry about your mother. And and I mean, obviously, we're upset. But it's his, it's his mom, you know. I mean, it's, yeah. it's even worse. And yeah. He says, uh, well, you know, I guess she she rode that white ship up some moonbeams and now she's up in the, the, the clouds or something like that. I mean, it was the craziest thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, it, there was just this long, awkward pause because I didn't know what he was talking about for a second. And right? then I realized, you know, he was quoting the show, like, from back when we did the white ship. <laughs> like, he was making a Lovecraft joke. Like, you know, this has just happened. So it, you know, I, I don't know if that's morbid or not, but it was just so. And then there was this pause. And then he said, well, you know, with the kind of Lovecraft worldview, maybe I don't want to be making a joke like what? that. <laughs> I'd like to think she's in a better place. But it was just the strangest. I mean, sometimes this show will pop up in weird conversations where you find out somebody listens to it or something like that. But that has got to be the weirdest, you know. Dude, that, that, is, that is crazy. And that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. I was a little bummed out when I got back, but, you know, I saw that video. Maybe I'm late to the this meme, but 
the Honey Badger Don't Care video on YouTube. <laughs> so I got back from this whole thing, and I'm laying around in bed, and I'm depressed, and I didn't want to do anything. And and I, sorry, folks, I'm really behind on these these readings that we've got to release. I should have been working on them when I got back this week, but I I well, wasn't. Your, and your then Grandma died. Yeah, yeah, I know, but then. <laughs> I saw that video about the honey badger, and it, for folks that have, we'll put a link up to it. But it's just a video of a guy narrating this nature video about the honey badger, who's like the most feared predator, or, or I should say rather, the most fearless predator. Yes, yeah. In I think sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. I mean, he fights snakes and he fights bees, and he doesn't care if a cougar attacks him, and right. you know, and and there's a part in the video where he gets bitten by a snake and. It's toxic venom, and the honey badger just passes out for a while. <laughs> and then he just gets right back up, and he goes back to eating the snake. The snake which bit him, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what have I got to complain about, man? The honey badger's so tough. <laughs> and Dude, I'm laying around I, whining. I watched that video about uh, 20 times, and I, I, I drove Rachel a little crazy with it because in the morning I just I'd have, I'd play it on my iPhone, and she could hear the honey badger, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> honey and badger then, don't care. Honey badger don't care. And then uh, I, I actually had a nightmare about the honey badger. And it, was, <laughs> it was coming after what? me. Yeah, it was scary, man, because those things are really aggressive. And I don't know if you know this, but they like will they'll go for the nuts. Right, if it's a bigger predator. Yeah. That's... So I was like, I was running away from it. I kicked it and it like rolled over. But then it just came, you know, like nothing hurt. You know, it got back up and it came after oh, me again. It was snarling and it was coming at I was so scared. It woke me up. <laughs> Again, those readings are going to be out soon. Sorry, I've been slacking on it. But Bruce uh, Green, who's doing one of the readings, you know, he's in True Grit. He is. I was watching the Oscars, and they showed a quick clip of him during the he, ceremony. He was in the Oscars, yeah. It was, yeah. It was pretty cool. Oscar uh, participant Bruce Green will be reading some From Beyond <laughs> for you soon. Uh, for our New York friends, there's a, a group out there, Manhattan Theater Source, that is presenting an evening of Lovecraftian horror called Things on the Doorstep. Uh, it's a double bill of one-man performances. I think one of them is The Hound, and the other one is called I Am Providence, and it's some kind of more avant-garde right. Lovecraftian thing. But it starts on March 14th. We'll link out to it on the site. Uh, I mention it because they are using music from our show oh, as part right. of the presentation. So their pre-show music and their, their outro music is going to be all stuff from here, which, by the way, is still available. If you send us a donation of $10, we can send you volume two of the music from the show. $15 or more, you get both volume one right. and, and that's volume a digital two. Download. And, the digital download digital and download. it's helping us fund our graphic novel deadbeats which we had done a preview to in our last episode as yeah. well which uh, um, people are loving is getting we're getting a lot of great feedback from it and yeah, uh and yeah. ian is is hard at work he's actually i can announce this he's also working on deadbeats and uh the case of charles Dexter ward yeah he's doing an adaptation of yeah of charles Dexter. that's great man well he's got a, a cover for it already right yeah i, I think yeah, on, yeah. on his site you can see it it's like a puzzle piece kind of thing it's really cool yeah yeah yeah. i'm really well, excited to see that also another thing i, I gotta bring up um i'm gonna be part of a kind of a lovecraftian cabaret in london april 15th uh, it's gonna be some readings music um, we're gonna show screens and a few different few different videos of, of like lovecraftian type stuff there's gonna be a pub quiz it's gonna be Oh, it's nice. gonna be crazy. I'm the MC of of the MC Lack E. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's April fifteenth. Tickets are selling out fairly quickly. It's on a big venue. It's this place called the Old Horse Hospital. What did they used to do there? It used to be a hospital for horses. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but like you know, London's such an old town that you know yeah. it was used in the turn of the century, last century, not this one. We'll put links up to it on the web page. There's a link on our Facebook page. That's, you know, it's one of the favorites of the page. It's called Lovecraft Reanimated, April 15th. Oh, man. Okay. If you're in the UK, go do that and I will envy you. 
That's really cool, man. I wish I was going. It's going to be uh, fun. I think we're going to try and get um, some nice video recordings of it, too. So maybe it'll end up yes. online at some point. But please do. that will pale in comparison to actually being there. So please show up. We want to sell this thing yeah. out. Basically, we've got an ethnologist. This is the mound, by the way, that we're talking about. Yes. Uh, an ethnologist whom we've seen before. He was in the other collaboration, The Curse of Yig. He's investigating this mound in Oklahoma because there are these ghost stories about it. Uh, a man walks around on the mound all day, a ghostly guy, and then at night there's this headless woman walking around with a torch. And a bunch of people have gone up there to investigate these ghosts. They disappear. They come back all crazy. Some of them are younger. Their organs get moved around and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So our protagonist goes up there. He digs around a bit, and he finds this cylinder of strange metal. And in it is the account of a fella that you've already mentioned named Zamacona, who was part of Coronado's expedition into this part of the world back in the mid-1500s. So our, our protagonist takes this sort of scroll back to this account, uh, back to his where he's staying to translate it, and most of the rest of the story that we're going to cover here is really the translation of that account, which starts here in Chapter 3, which is where we left off last time. Man, that is a great summary. Good job. Yeah, yeah. thank you. And basically, Zamacona, he's been with Coronado's expedition as they're looking for the cities of gold. They think you're going to be out here. They're not finding anything pretty frustrating and you know basically coronado's like look so many of these indian fools have been telling me stories about cities of gold and all this stuff i'm gonna smack the next indian guy that tells us some crappy story that's not true <laughs> they've been selling me elevator passes <laughs> they tell me about parties with lots of girls where you show up and it's just three dudes in a mixtape like i'm not hanging out with these indians anymore this is not good stuff and he actually uh, kills uh one of the guys yeah so jimmy aiken who's our who's our reader today as, as he was last time he you know he's also sort of an expert on the story and he sent us some notes didn't he have some yeah he did well the stuff that's actually historically accurate is um that well zamacona is a made-up guy he's not a real right. dude. but uh coronado was looking for the uh, city of gold which was called sabola i believe mm -hmm. but it actually turned out just to be this pueblo village called zuni mm -hmm. there was an indian guide that was well known which called el el turco which was Spanish for the Turk because I guess he kind of looked like a Turk, guided him there. But when he found out it wasn't actually a city of gold, a freaking Coronado uh, killed the guy. He strangles him, he yeah? He strangled him. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's hardcore strangling somebody. It's not just shooting somebody yeah. or stabbing them. That's like, it takes, you You want them dead for an extended period of time and you're, that's hardcore. <laughs> well, yeah. You don't want it, you want them dead for an extended period of time? Well, yeah, you, you know, like, like if, okay, like for a split second, I want you dead, so I shoot you. And then I go, well, maybe. Oh, I see. You know what you I mean? You really want them dead. Exactly. He's, yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. time, he's like, I want you dead. I want you dead. I want you dead. And yeah. keeps, you, you know, have to think about it while exactly. you're doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah I hear you. <laughs> Jimmy had said there's also a nice cultural touch with because they, they mentioned that he's he was a wild and younger son back in Spain. And, right. you know, typically in a family, the eldest son would have inherited the family business. But the younger son, they have to figure out something else to do. Yeah, they would either join the military or the priesthood or whatever. They'd have to kind of strike out on their own. And, of course, joining up with the conquistadors is, you know, something that a younger a younger son would do. Yeah, and another note that Jimmy wrote here, I'll, I'll read verbatim because I thought it was very insightful. He said, something that shows up in many Lovecraft stories is his appreciation for conquerors. He seems to admire empires that just plow right over their enemies with scarcely a second thought. There's thus an irony that this story's viewpoint character, Zamacona, is a conquistador who becomes terrified of the outer world being conquered by the completely unstoppable underground civilization. That's a, well, we haven't got to that point yet in, this, in the story, but mm -hmm. we find out that this underground civilization is, is uber-powerful, and, and that's yeah. the cause of all these weird things. Actually, that's really funny because he's reading on the show, but he's not even reading what he wrote. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he's reading what Lovecraft wrote, and you're reading what he wrote. We're really making him work for us, you know? Like, 
do these quotes, turn them around, get them read for us really quick. And by the way, if you could do all of our notes for us, that would be great too. <laughs> he did a lot of notes. He sent us really great notes. And uh, thank you, Jim. them throughout the show. And hopefully remembering to give him credit when credit is due. Yeah. But, you know, if we don't. If we don't, too bad. Yeah. We just, <laughs> we, we just look smarter. Zamacona, he's been chatting up this guy. So during this, his expedition with Coronado, he's been chatting up this Indian named Charging Buffalo. Yeah. That's who we heard from in this opening paragraph, the opening reading we had today, who's been telling him about these openings in the ravines that lead down into another world where there may be these cities of gold and, and where a white man with a thunder stick, yeah. you know, might be more successful where the indigenous populations have not. Right. Um, and obviously Charging Buffalo, he's he knows about the strangling. He doesn't want to tell Coronado any of this. So, no. you know, he finds a more patient listener in Zamacona. And, and Charging Buffalo knows a lot. Yeah, this is yeah, this is something that, well, I mean, first of all, he knows that there are these these people that live down there. They're called, like, old ones. Uh-huh. Well, there was a flood, and they kind of, the flood sort of dro- drove them underground, which seems strange to me that you would go underground when there's a flood. Well, no, no, but Chris, the, so if he had just said there was some kind of flood that drove people underground, that might be something that he, that sounds anecdotal. But what he says specifically is that there were these floods or sinkings, uh-huh. the refugees from the flood came and told the old ones that the gods of outer earth didn't like men anymore. So if there were men that they met, the only reason that the men were alive was because they're in league with demons. And so the best decision is to go underground and close up shop. Oh, okay. So it, it's really intricate. Yeah. What Charging Buffalo knows. I don't know why, because this information is going to be all repeated later. So I, I don't know why he has that degree of knowledge. Yeah, he knows some really specific things about this ancient uh, civilization. Yeah. And that they're like these half-ghost people, that they're um, they're neither flesh nor spirit, but b- but both somewhere in between. Um, and that the old ones came down from the stars, so that these, these people um, obviously are from outer space. And they, they built these cities of gold underground. Before the crust of the earth, was, it was still forming, so they couldn't live out there. So that's why they, they already had underground civilization. Right. To, to return to. And he, he even knows that, well, even though they're half ghosts, they still need to breathe, and that's why they have these passages right. here. And then he, he drops this other really disturbing fact about them. They had frightful beasts with a faint strain of human blood on which they rode and which they employed for other purposes. The things, so the people hinted, were carnivorous and, like their masters, preferred human flesh. So that although the old ones themselves did not breed... They had a sort of half-human slave class, which also served to nourish the human and animal population. This had been very oddly recruited and was supplemented by a second slave class of reanimated corpses. The old ones knew how to make a corpse into an automaton, which would last almost indefinitely and perform any sort of work when directed by streams of thought. Charging Buffalo said that the people had all come to talk by means of thought only, speech having been found crude and needless, except for religious devotions and emotional expression, as eons of discovery and study rolled by. They worshipped Yig, the great father of serpents, and Tulu, the octopus-headed entity that had brought them down from the stars. Appeasing both of these hideous monstrosities, by means of human sacrifices offered up in a very curious manner, which Charging Buffalo did not care to describe. Now, I, I don't want to be all negative, Nelly, about everything, but when I hear this passage, I'm thinking our ethnologist, who who is admittedly he has so so Spanish, yeah, is translating <laughs> a what is it a three four hundred year old document, yeah, the the account of Zamacona. So it's in antiquated Spanish, yeah, who who was told a tale by a non English speaker. 
mm-hmm. named Charging Buffalo. Yeah. And this is the the amount of detail that the it's ethnologist really, got. Yeah, this is a real, it's really specific information. And not just specific information, but crazy conceptual stuff. Like... Uh, yeah, like w- sending thoughts. and Sending thoughts, but even second-class citizens and reanimated corpses and, and all that. Like, those are concepts that I don't even know if... if Native people would really have. Yeah, I mean, when I, you know, I would translate Latin. I, if you'd see something that even looked like reanimated corpse, you would say, "Well, that's that can't mean that." Perhaps they mean an ancestor or a son that looked like them, or you know what I mean. You, right. I just can't see how they would put cobble this together. Whatever. I don't understand why this is even being covered here because it all comes up again later yeah. when he actually meets the old ones and talks to them. So I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't see the point of it here. But let's keep moving. So Zamakana decides he wants to break off from the expedition and check yeah. out Charging Buffalo's story. He thinks Coronado won't believe him anyway, and, and, and if he's the one that finds it, why share the glory? Or the gold as well. Or the gold, right. Yeah. So in, in October, he splits with Buffalo. They go down to where this entrance is. Uh, Charging Buffalo points to this this gorge, uh, you know, takes him down there. It takes days to get to get to the place. Charging Buffalo won't go in, doesn't want any business there. He's, you know, he's done with it because that's that's the place. And uh, Zamacona says, okay, I'm going in. He has enough provisions. He's got torches and things because he knows it's like a long journey inside. It's not, you know, it'll take right. him a while to, to get in there. He gives uh, Charging Buffalo some trinkets for yeah. his time. That's, that's <laughs> how you pay Indians. <laughs> gives him some bottle caps and a little magic eight ball keychain or something. <laughs> Well, actually, they set up a meeting. Don't, like, let's meet over at that rock in a month. In a month, yeah. So somebody knows where he's at. Exactly. He goes into the passages, and that, and and you know, I'm going to just kind of push through this because I don't, I sure, don't sure. find it particularly interesting. It's um, another cyclopean masonry inside there. You know, there's all these images of Yig and Tulu inscribed on the walls. It's horrific and beautiful, and there's all these bas-reliefs and cartouches and whatever, but he's down there for like three days going through these tunnels. Yeah, camping and then yeah. getting up and moving some so, more. Yeah. Well, he thinks it's three days. He doesn't know because it's you know it's just completely dark down there. At the end of the third day, he reaches this area where, where, where light's coming out of, and it's kind of this blue glowish light. It's almost like a electric aurora light. Yeah, it's just kind of in the air. I think it's kind of a it's, Tron feel, I guess. Exactly. He's so gone into the computer. That's what he doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's this huge underground like continent. It really reminds me of Journey to the Center of the Earth where there's this underground world, you know, where there's a sky mm-hmm. and there's mountains and it's huge. You know, it's just this right. big place and you can see you know, all this rocks and this this whole landscape before him, but everything's really bluish. The sky's this indistinct, like he said, like like I said before, it's a aurora. It's just sort of this mm. mist that's up in the sky, but it's not really the sky. And yeah. there's no vegetation around the area that he's at. It's all just rocky and stuff. He basically decides he's going to venture in. He goes down the hill, crosses over. There's a stream and water. He starts finding plants and he comes to this, he sees a town and he goes into the town and and the town, there's this temple, and in the, the temple is, um, it's dark inside. There's just kind of a door that's been ajar. The whole place is abandoned. There's no people around. He does see animal yeah. footprints, some weird animal footprints that he doesn't really know exactly what they are. Charging Buffalo had told him something about them having herds of creatures down there. Right, um, and that was from our quote, actually. Yeah, yeah, right. But it's got that great, you know, not they were not hooves, nor hands, nor feet, nor precisely paws. <laughs> right. Nor pumps, nor sandals. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
And he finds uh, along the way too, on his way to the temple, I think he finds um, he does. in the ground uh, a metal coin, kind of like what Grey Eagle had given our Well, yeah, specifically, it's he describes it, and and our narrator goes, "Wait, that's the the thing that Grey Eagle gave me." Yeah. You know, the the ethnologist. So he gets to this place. He finds this temple. He goes inside the temple, and inside of it, it is completely gold. It's just covered right. in gold, except for there's a statue of Tulu in there that is made of this material that's of the same substance of trinket that he found, which mm-hmm. is this weird metal that is unlike any other metal, and it's sort of magnetic to itself. And he, I think he starts calling it Tulu stone or Tulu metal. So boom, he found a, a building made entirely of gold. He succeeded where Coronado failed. End of the yeah. story, right? Yeah, that's it. And then he goes home. Yeah. No, of course not. Boo. Well, they hint here at this part that um, gold is really common in this sort of netherworld. It's, like, it's almost like plastic or something. Right. I mean, they, they make water bottles out of it. They don't care. But uh, the metal in the medallion is precious because because it's that Tulu metal. It came with Tulu right. down to the earth from the stars. Just like, you know, my neighbors used to bring me saltwater taffy and fireworks from Missouri when they went on vacation. This exactly. is what Tulu, he this brought is, this down to This is the stuff that they're really interested in. So yeah. when he's in there just looking around thinking, hey, this is great, he hears stampeding sound like there's something coming and he realizes oh no these these animals are going to be coming over here so he tries to push the the door to the temple closed but there's all this dirt you know because it's been left open for you know who knows how long so he's having a struggle against it and it's a little bit of a tense moment but he eventually gets it closed and locks it and then all of the he can hear the things outside kind of wandering around and then eventually they go away but he's too nervous to open the door so he just kind of makes camp inside this place and then goes to sleep yeah and i, I that that actually was a it was kind of a creepy moment that was the, creepy the, the animals are stalking around i think one of them even kind of clumsily tries the door and he's just kind of stuck in there and he doesn't know what they are yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool it's pretty creepy and he, yeah. he falls asleep and that's the end of chapter three what finally roused zamakona was a thunderous rapping at the door it beat through his dreams and dissolved all the lingering mists of drowsiness as soon as he knew what it was. There could be no mistake about it. It was a definite human and peremptory rapping, performed apparently with some metallic object and with all the measured quality of conscious thought or will behind it. Feeling sure that his visitors were men and not demons and arguing that they could have no reason for considering him an enemy, Zamakona decided to face them openly and at once, and accordingly fumbled with the ancient latch till the golden door creaked open from the pressure of those outside. As the great portal swung back, Zamakona stood facing a group of about twenty individuals of an aspect not calculated to give him alarm. They seemed to be Indians, though their tasteful robes and trappings and swords were not such as he had seen among any of the tribes of the outer world, while their faces had many subtle differences from the Indian type. That they did not mean to be irresponsibly hostile was very clear, for instead of menacing him in any way, they merely probed him attentively and significantly with their eyes, as if they expected their gaze to open up some sort of communication. The longer they gazed, the more he seemed to know about them and their mission, For although no one had spoken since the vocal summons before the opening of the door, he found himself slowly realizing that they had come from the great city beyond the low hills, mounted on animals, and that they had been summoned by animals who had reported his presence, that they were not sure what kind of person he was or just where he had come from, 
but that they knew he must be associated with that dimly remembered outer world which they sometimes visited in curious dreams. How he read all this in the gaze of the two or three leaders, he could not possibly explain. We meet the old one. Yeah, and they are just some guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've got, you know, telepathy. Yes, they do have telepathy, Um, and they're able to, to, to share their ideas with him. Now, this is the point that I'm the story loses me, because it's just a huge letdown. When these guys show up, they're kind of nice guys and they just, they want to talk and, and they yeah. communicate in a different way, but it's not scary anymore. Yeah. It turns into this kind of bad science fiction sort of thing and not a creepy story. It's a bait and switch. Yeah. Jimmy, when he wrote us about it, he said, you know, I think I know why you guys probably don't like this. And it's because I don't think I liked it much in my first reading either. You think you're getting one kind of thing and then it, Everything in plot-wise screeches to a halt, and then it's just a description of this civilization. And it's something that Lovecraft does at other times in his work, right? Uh, he does it in um, Shadow Out of Time. He does it in The Nameless City a bit, where it's just kind of exploring that. And, of course, uh, Mountains of Madness, where there's all this... The guys are reading the hieroglyphics that have all of this really elaborate history in it. You know, on the second reading, knowing that that's what I'm getting into, it is more palatable well i don't know i picked this up again because we were doing the show and i've been reading through this and it's it was less infuriating as it was when i read this the first time and part of that was because i didn't have the wrong expectations yeah i still find it kind of dull and stupid but uh, when i'm reading this a lot of it reminded me of brave new world honestly Uh the things that are interesting when brave new world sort of goes through their world you're going with it through the main character of the story and and exploring it what's interesting about that is how the main character who's more like the reader he come, he butts heads, and that's where the, the drama is in the story, pushing against their ideas and their way of life, and they're pushing back yeah. against him. Well, no, yeah, it's a great premise because he's sort of a beta male who's an alpha, and he, he's worried about that, and, and so there's that tension, and that's how you get information. And right. then they introduce the savage, and you get more information and see the clash. I mean, it's all told in a very dramatic fashion. A lot of things, they just assume that you already know. I mean, they pretend that you would already know these things. There's a lot of parallels here, yeah. Yeah, but in this story, which we're going to see here soon, he just kind of sits there and all these things happen. He gives his his feelings on them, like says, I don't like this or that's creepy or that's weird. But that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no drama in it. There's not there's not no. there's no tension. There's no I mean, eventually, you know, we're going to get to this. He's going to try and get out of there. And that's a little dramatic. But at this point, you don't care, really. Sure. Like in the time machine, when he meets the Illawai. Right. Uh, they are at first just beautiful and, and curious and interesting, and then slowly it's revealed that they've got the slave race underground who's actually eating them and that they're kind of idiots. I mean, what? there's parallels with that, too. Well, so in their first conversation, he learns a million things. In their first conversation, yeah, he gets that the world he's in is called Kinyan. They confirm everything that Charging Buffalo has said. These guys are ancient. They come from space. Tulu brought them here. They're the original people of Earth uh, that settled once the crust was properly made up. Mm-hmm. But although they themselves are a little skeptical of this history because it's been so long that they actually worship Tulu mostly for aesthetic reasons, you know, they actually confirm uh, this bit of history, too. They say uh, at some time infinitely in the past, most of the outer world had sunk beneath the ocean so that only a few refugees remained to bear the news to Kinyan. This was undoubtedly due to the wrath of the space devils, hostile alike to men and to men's gods. For it bore out rumors of a primordial earlier sinking, which had submerged the gods themselves, including Great Tulu, who still lay prisoned and dreaming in the watery vaults of the half-cosmic city, Relax. 
No man, not a slave of the space devils, it was argued, could live long on the outer earth, and it was decided that all beings who remain there must be evilly connected. Accordingly, traffic with the lands of sun and starlight abruptly ceased. The subterraneous approaches to Kenyon, or such as could be remembered, were either blocked up or carefully guarded, and all encroachers were treated as dangerous spies and enemies. So, you know, charging Buffalo was exactly right. He knew exactly what happened, and it wasn't aired at all. (laughs) So why why did Lovecraft need to repeat this information that we just got? Don't know. That was a long time ago, and the people in Kenyon actually think maybe that a lot of the people think the outer world is is a myth. So they're very happy that he's showed up so they can learn more about that outer world. Exactly. And he sort of becomes a bit of a a celebrity eventually with these guys. They decide, hey, all this is going on, all their talking goes on while they're still in this old abandoned village. And they decide, okay, we're going to take you with us to our our big city, you know, where everybody lives and where all the fun stuff happens. They drop something on him that's pretty serious, you know, before they do that, which is, you know, we're glad to have you here. They're being really cool. Um, You're going to really love it. And we're going to tell you all about our little lands and towns and give you all the information you're seeking, but... You can't leave. You can never go back. Sorry. That's a great dramatic choice, which gets exploited time and time again for the rest of the story. Yeah. Gosh, I wish he just bolted right there. <laughs> they had a fight. We learned what we learned. You know, it's over. The reason why they don't want him to leave is they're afraid that he's going to go up and tell the outside world and then they're going to come in and ruin everything. Yeah, and, and you know, they're happy that they've, they've met a European. They're like, all these other folks that have come down here have been stupid, so we're glad that some some, <laughs> yeah. some white folks showed up. And, and uh, But we also know that you guys are, uh, you know, really overrunning the new world now, so... We don't want you to go back and tell them because then all the Europeans are going to come down here. And, yeah, ruin yeah. everything for us. So, so, so you're right. They're going to take them down to town. In the meantime, they, they tell them some other stuff like they've conquered death. Yeah, they don't die. They can make themselves young again at will, which explains the earlier incident that we talked about in the last show where the man came back into town and he was younger. Yeah. It also renders that completely unscary. Like yeah. Anything that was, that was cool about that is gone now because they just explained it. That's pretty much what happens like through the rest of the story they explain everything Mm -hmm. that happens in the first part and it's not scary anymore in fact it's really kind of lame they don't have birth anymore they don't unless it's for experimentation because since they don't die they don't need it they the master race he uses the phrase master race for (laughs) these guys they're sophisticated enough to not need a large population no i don't know see conceptually these things i think about the singularity and and that when are we going to get to the point where people can scan their consciousness in the machines and What's going to be the effect of that? And I mean, there's conceptual things here that are interesting. And I think, I mean, he touches on a few ideas that get explored better in A Brave New World here. Right, but, right, absolutely. Um, but this predates Brave New World by about a couple of years. Oh, so Brave New World's just a ripoff of The Mound? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying that it's obviously these ideas are, are floating around at this point in history. And, yeah. you know, people are latching on to them and exploring them like and like you, you're saying with the whole singularity thing and people you know uploading their consciousness that's sort of exploding in in science fiction right now those are there's a lot mm-hmm. of books being written about that type of stuff so i think it's pretty cool you know to see those parallels yeah part of the ability to change their own age and physiology is and it's kind of why they're referred to as half ghosts these people have somehow through force of will uh, they're able to make themselves immaterial but that 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 ability to become immaterial is something they use while they're sleeping and dreaming a lot which also explains dreaming and they're immaterial they'll often cast themselves up into the outer world so earlier in the story when they talked about seeing these great battles in the sky mm-hmm. uh, that's actually these people dreaming making themselves immaterial and kind of reenacting what their ancestors did takes away the ghost story element of it uh the city they live in is called sath 
and then way down in the abysses, there's another region called Yath. Yeah, yeah. Now Yath is everything's kind of bluish here, mm-hmm. and Yath everything's sort of reddish. Yeah, going on with the Tron parallel. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> but but it's interesting because it's a mirror sort of thing where the people of Sath they don't know much about Yath. That's sort of an ancient world. It's another right. thing that's subterranean to them, and so it kind of mirrors the world in the above ground. And Yath is where these horned, four-footed, human-like creatures come from that are now their kind of slave animals. Yeah, they've conquered everything and they bred these slave animals with the human things to create their bird beasts of burden. And, yeah. Uh, they have a slave class that they've bred from conquered enemies. There's a really curious sentence here. I highlighted it and actually Jimmy did too when he sent his notes. It says, uh, The Rulin type itself had become highly superior through selective breeding and social evolution. The nation having passed through a period of idealistic industrial democracy which gave equal opportunities to all and thus by raising the naturally intelligent to power drained the masses of all their brains and stamina that was puzzling that's a really interesting notion because it does say well at one point there was this meritocracy that was highly Mm -hmm. democratic and that somehow that led to almost eugenics you know what i mean like the people that were naturally intelligent rose to the top but i think what's sort of implied in this is that that people of a certain genetic type are superior in a certain way, which in reality is not true. People can rise from their merits, usually from their accomplishments and what they've happened to them, not usually based on their genetics. Yeah. Well, it's a puzzling notion. I mean, I guess maybe he's saying that naturally intelligent come to power, start running everything so that the masses just kind of dumb down and don't have to worry about so much. And then that naturally intelligent becomes the master, but it doesn't make sense because at some point it stops being a meritocracy. Right. And at some point it's, I don't know, man, yeah. Interesting well, social stuff to, to think about. Exactly. But it's, again, not scary. <laughs> no, no. Well, this isn't, I don't think the point is to be scary. No, anymore. it's not. It's you know? not. It's but, that bait and switch thing. I mean, this is just sci-fi, right? It's yes. Kind of, this is just sci-fi. Future. Yeah. And well, in, in, unfortunately, this is what I don't like about this story is that it's not really a story. It's just a historical recounting. Right. And it really doesn't have much of a bearing on, on what is going to happen at all in the story. You would think if you learned about these, these people of, of Tath, that they would eventually, you're learning all this back information, and this information is going to help us understand what they're going to do in the future. But they really mm. don't do much of anything by the end of the story here. <laughs> no. you know, and well, I love here, actually, and this is be a good last quote for us. We're learning about them, but they've got this really, their government is just this kind of pervy socialism. You know what I mean? Like they, <laughs> uh, they, they kind of are governed more by custom than law because they're little. It seems like every citizen is hedonism bot from Futurama or something like that. Like, you know, they, they're flesh crafting and they're doing weird things. There's no civil or social distinction between sexes. Mm-hmm. They've abandoned machines. They mostly ride around on their little half-human unicorn deals. And then, you know, basically here's what's on the menu for daily life in Kenyon. It says, Daily life was organized in ceremonial patterns with games, intoxication, torture of slaves, daydreaming, gastronomic and emotional orgies, religious exercises, exotic experiments, artistic and philosophical discussions, and the like as the principal occupations. Property, chiefly land, slaves, animals, shares in the common city enterprise of Sath, and ingots of magnetic Tulu metal, the former universal money standard, was allocated on a very complex basis which included a certain amount equally divided among all the freemen. Poverty was unknown, and labor consisted only of certain administrative duties imposed by an intricate system of testing and selection. 
I think, didn't we talk about it at some point, Lovecraft had hinted he was interested in a future where labor sort of disappeared and people had more time to contemplate yeah. beauty. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what this is, but of course it, you have to have a slave class if you want to do something like that. Yeah, if you got, I mean, somebody's got to do the dishes, man. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and then there's, you know what, there's some more interesting stuff here about religion, but let's get into that next time. We'll get into that next time. We're, we're basically, we're closing up chapter four here. We're going to get into chapter five and more... Uh, there's more description of things, but also some plot stuff starts to happen. So we, we're going to breeze through that in the next episode, and, and that should be our last on the mound. Yes, this is, the third part will be the last part of the mound, yeah. one way or the other. It might be a slightly <laughs> longer episode if, if it needs to be, yeah. if it needs to be, but right. uh, we'll, we'll get it out. Yeah. Because I want to move on to the next story, which, I, which I've heard is even worse than this story. I haven't read no, it. No, hush up. It's Zillia Bishop. It's, oh, it's another last. one. It's oh, it's the Medusa's. Coil. It's Medusa's yeah. coil, which I've heard mm-hmm. is Lovecraft. And this is just somebody said this. I don't think that this is actually true, but somebody said that that Lovecraft knew that he was going to get paid from her, so he wrote a really bad story. Hmm. <laughs> well, it's I don't know. It's a cool title. <laughs> it's a cool title, yeah, for sure. But that's not that's not for a couple weeks. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna finish this up next week again. Thanks everybody for being patient. Yes. Uh, and thank you, Jimmy Aiken, for all of your hard work and for doing the great readings and um, we'll be glad to have you back next week absolutely uh, for now I am Chad Pfeiffer and I'm Chris Lackey and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com <laughs> <laughs>